On this retreat, we've been talking a lot about the beautiful qualities or factors of mind like joy and contentment, relaxation and happiness. And it's wonderful to hear about and contemplate the possibility that practice could actually involve those kinds of experience. I know hearing from some of you that's uh, been your experience. And it's, I think, very, very helpful for us to balance what can be our usual attitudes to meditation, which sometimes can be a bit like Chinese medicine. You know, it smells terrible, it tastes terrible, you hold your nose, oh, but you know it's good for you. And even after a while, you get a kind of per- a perverse pleasure in the distaste, you know, the unpleasantness of it, but you're going to soldier through. And this can also be a kind of attitude we can have in meditation of being on pain patrol, you know, where it's like the, the, the emergency vehicles just waiting for the next train wreck or the next, you know, accident, the next knee pain, to actually invoke, incline, contemplate, allow for the possibility of happiness is, is fantastic. And many of you have been experiencing these kinds of mind states, even if it's just a moment here and there. There's that taste of that that's, that's empowering, that brings faith, that brings confidence. So it's wonderful. It's, it's so important to hear this message, this possibility, these practices. But (laughs) I also know that what's happening a lot of the time for many of you, include myself in this, is our inner experience is one of restlessness, of discomfort, of disease, of boredom, and that what we're doing a lot of the time is thinking, right? You know, you look so good from the outside, so serene, and inside there's just this storm of wants and fantasies. This is often our experience in meditation. We're thinking about the past, about the future, regrets and planning, worries, stress, all of the different kinds of agitation. If we're actually just thinking about the present in our meditation practice, that's a good sign. That's an advanced kind of practice because, you know, at least we're here, even if the commenting is about what we're currently experiencing. But when we meditate and begin to look at the contents of our mind and how crazy it is, it's a little humbling, isn't it? You have to have a lot of humility to do this practice. It's one of my favorite cartoons. It's from the the series rhymes with orange, and it's called uh, As Medicine Advances. And the scenario, the little strip is uh, there's a patient and a doctor, and the doctor's obviously reading the patient the results of a test. And the doctor says, the, This MRI confirms it. Your mind is full of dumb and repetitive thoughts. <laughs> so I don't know if MRIs are quite so refined, but we can confirm that, right? This is where the mind goes. And we're so grateful that other people can't actually know our thoughts. There's you know, stories of lots of teachers in the, in the East who have that capacity, and that's pretty scary. You know, if you're sitting here and we're going, all right, look, oh, look. we don't, not my level, that's anyway. But we've had years, if not lifetimes, of training our mind to act in this way, 
to be full of these kinds of thoughts and worries and busyness. You know, from our life of, of so much stress and multitasking and all of the agendas we have and the, just the, the concerns of getting a life together and family and work and relationship, etc., etc. How can we expect, you know, to drive into Spirit Rock, walk into the meditation hall and say, stop, don't do that. Now just focus on your breath and be calm and content. It's not going to happen. It hasn't happened, right, a lot of the time. Um, And so this quality of mind and body of restlessness, I actually think is one of the major hindrances for Westerners, this this agitated kind of mind that's always... uh, kind of got a grip, is gripped by something, is, is not able to just relax and release. You do hear stories in Asia that the meditation master will just take, stay to his students, now in this meditation, don't think, and they won't. They'll just stop. Um, I know my friend Kamala, master's another teacher, talks about her experience with Upandita, where she went to him in an interview and said, you know, my mind is just so full of thoughts. I'm thinking about this and that. And he said, don't do that. This is a silent retreat. <laughs> so that was his advice. <laughs> Try it. See if it works. Um, in 2010, I think it was in 11, in the fall of both those years, I went to India on pilgrimage to um, go visit the sites associated with the life of the Buddha. They're called the holy sites. And it was really very moving to have that experience of visiting the sites where the Suttas were given the discourses as the site of his birth and death, etc. So it was a great experience. And on the first time uh, I was there in Bodhgaya, the site of his enlightenment, I got um, an introduction to a beautiful couple, Rajesh and Usha, who are convert Buddhists. There's a whole movement in India of people who are in what used to be called the untouchable caste or the Dalit caste, converting to Buddhism to escape the caste system. But many of them don't know much about Buddhism you know, because they're just, they're recent converts. It's millions of them now. It's quite amazing, this movement. Rajesh and Usha are very sincere practitioners. I got introduced them to, uh, to them through a fellow uh, meditator friend. And when they knew I was coming back the next time, they actually um, asked me to do a day long. And I came back the next time uh, on that trip with a group of students from this program I may have mentioned a couple of times. Actually, all of us are... T- leading it this, uh, this time around called Dedicated Practitioners Program. And at the end, I put out to s- the students if they wanted to join me on a pilgrimage. And actually, a couple of people here were on that pilgrimage, and we had an amazing time together. But anyway, we were there in Bodhgaya, and they invited me to lead a day-long. And actually, Scott, who's here, helped me on that day-long. Um, and it was a really interesting experience to be in Bodhgaya, the land of the place of the Buddha's enlightenment, as a Westerner, as a female, teaching Indians who were, you know, the the race that the Buddha came from and this kind of beautiful circular movement that had happened where I had something to offer them. It was actually a little challenging because I had to teach through a translator and teaching in a culture to people I had never met before and didn't have any sense of, you know, really how to connect with them. I didn't know them at all. And there was a whole range. We had a 14-year-old girl and, you know, quite elderly people and a whole range in between, housewives and teachers and a couple of monks who showed up for this. Thing. So it was, had its challenges, I must admit, but it was also very sweet. And at one point uh, we said, would you like to have interviews? And they all said, oh, yes, yes, we'd like interviews. Yes, yes, okay. 
So we arranged that during one walking period, Scott and I would take turns, uh, would, would do these interviews, and they didn't actually have anywhere, you know, we have these night interview rooms. They just led me to a corridor and said, here you can do your interviews, and there was kind of a chest there, a big box, and I kind of perched on the box. And one by one, it turned out that Usha, the wife, who was my friend, uh, would lead these beautiful Indian women up to me. And it, just without us even knowing or talking about it, all the women came to me and the men went to Scott. But the, she would lead one by one these women to me. And, you know, they were, I knew they were new to meditation because they were convert Buddhists and hadn't had much access to teaching. So I would say to them, you know, how is your meditation practice? And they would all just smile in this beatific way and go, oh, very good. Go, okay, um, well, what happens when you meditate? Oh, mind is peaceful, calm, still. <laughs> kind of, okay, well, do you have any problems when you meditate? Oh, no, it's very pleasant, <laughs> it's lovely. And after about the third round of this, I realized I should be asking them for meditation <laughs> advice because they just had this capacity to drop into a sense of ease and calm. It was just really lovely and inspiring to witness This is not our experience most of the time, is it? No. You know, our minds are busy. Our minds have been filled with this kind of agitated, worried, frenetic kind of experience. Now, we've got to understand in the context of things, this retreat, 10 days, is a short time to deepen in concentration. My friend, colleague, Christina Feldman, says it takes a month. She, she wants students to practice for a month before she even knows what their potential for concentration is. So 10 days is a short time. So we're not expecting, as I said right at the opening, that this is a place where people will necessarily have deep, concentrated experiences. You know, Our minds are so busy and crazy that, that it's probably not going to happen for everyone. But I think all of us a learning and training in what it means to develop a collected and unified mind, what it means to calm the mind and actually open to or incline to these um, experiences that are a little more peaceful, tranquil, connected. There's this continuity of practice. So that's what we're learning, how to do that with a sense of ease and relaxation, not out of striving, not out of kind of repressing or denying our experience so we can get to some altered state, but actually through the continuity of presence. And so through this experience of what it's like to collect and unify the mind, we begin to see, and some of you have already said this, that what you've always been doing in practice is actually breath meditation, kind of holding on to the breath and not really opening to the full range of experience. So it clarifies that. And then as we go through the retreat, we will open up the practice and you'll see what it's like to open up from this collected and unified mind. So it's really pointing to this, or this, the point of this retreat is a training, is a, a clarifying, a, a giving more tools and, and uh, experience in these different styles of practice. But to actually allow the mind to settle in meditation, any kind of meditation, but particularly this kind, Samatha meditation, tranquility meditation, we need to acknowledge where the disturbances are. We don't just get there by kind of hanging on to 
what we want or think should happen. But this willingness to work skillfully with the hindrances that Andrea spoke about the other night is really very important. Because let's face it, as I started out by saying, the hindrances are present, however they're manifesting. These hindrances of um, wanting, a sense desire, ill will or aversion, uh, sleepiness, restlessness and doubt. These are common experiences that we have. I think, especially as far as uh, tranquility meditation, there are four main strategies that we can use to work skillfully with the hindrances. I call them the four A's. So you can help to remember, you know, in Buddhism, there's a lot of lists. Here's another one. I see people getting out their pens. It's like, well, list. We like lists. They're allow, avoid, abandon, and attend. And in allow, it's just we actually just let the hindrance be present. Whatever it is, we kind of let it play out. We can, if it's in the background, great, and we can keep a connection with the breath. Sometimes it's just all of our experience, but we don't create a struggle about it. This can actually be a really skillful way to relate. We, we know they're impermanent. Whatever the construct is, whatever the story we're believing is, it won't last. So we just have that kind of faith of gone, having gone through it so many times to just let it play out. And that actually speeds the process through. We don't get so caught up in it. I'm not going to go into detail about these because Andrea already spoke about the um, hindrances, but just a little, uh, some other supports for you. So allow, avoid. This is kind of like, I don't know if you remember this, you know, danger, Will Robertson, danger, danger. It's like lost in space. Don't go there. You know, we know there are certain things, if we think about them or ways we might sit or relate to the body, that the mind will get stirred up, that we'll get caught in certain patterns of reactivity. If we, we spend all our time thinking about work or a difficult relationship or some hurt that we have from the past. So we see that it's just better not to go there. So it's really that sense of not now. I'm not going to get the mind entangled in that really skillful. And then there's abandon or let go, you know, when we're really caught in something and we can recognize that this is a hindrance. This is actually suffering. Can I, through whatever skillful means, and again, I'm not going to go into all of the different possibilities, but whatever skillful means, somehow disentangle. I mentioned metta uh, yesterday, I think it was, as as a possibility of one way of just coming out of a, a mind state that's really stuck. You know, there are other ones that we can use to break that. And then there's attend, which is really we bring mindfulness to it. If we really find we're caught, struggling, we need to just turn to whatever that experience is, bring our wisdom, our mindfulness to it, so we can begin to understand it and start the process of transformation, of not being so caught, not being so identified, not being so lost. So all of these are helpful strategies that are kind of in the background as I go through the rest of this talk. Um, Because what I'm going to be talking about is working with disturbances and how to do that skillfully. So just putting that in, you can understand these as the different options. There are other ones, of course, that you know and Andrea spoke about that might be useful. As the retreat goes on, the hindrances that were at first really gross and you know severe, all of you it was like uh, you know those perpetual motion ducks looking out here sometimes. It's like everyone just nodding off and sleeping, <laughs> and you know you could see the tension and the pain as people squirmed and wiggled. And it's gotten a lot quieter in here. It's just a natural process that happens. 
but the hindrances also get more subtle. And so our awareness of them has to rise to meet that. It can be the slightest contracting away from or leaning in. So again, Andrea was talking this morning about mindfulness and the breath. It's the same with whatever the disturbances are. We have to be willing to see as they become more subtle. And I really see that, as I said already, the major hindrance for Westerners, one of the major obstacles is restlessness. And restlessness, even though it's just one of the hindrances, there's a way it's both the cause of all the other hindrances and the response to all the other hindrances. We can't bear them, and so we squirm and wiggle and try to find our way out, and the mind goes here and there. And if we already have that energy of restlessness, you know, as the mind's going here and there, what's it going into? Wanting and not wanting and doubt and sleepiness. So it really is so central, this tendency of the mind to slip away from our chosen object, to go into daydreaming, into fantasy, into reverie, into commenting, into judging, into, into narrating. And we start to see that whatever is unresolved for us in our experience, either present moment or from the past, will sooner or later come up for us in our meditation. And our willingness and our ability to work skillfully with those experiences is what allows the meditation to deepen. Our willingness and ability to actually stay present, even as these storms come through. Pema Chodron, a great Tibetan teacher, says that all of our practice is about learning to stay. It's kind of like training the dog, you know, stay, stay. The mind's a bit like that. No, come, stay. Be with this, be with this in a skillful way, in a skillful way. When we're unwilling to be with our experience, that leads to this restlessness. I can't bear this, anything else but this. What about that? You know, past and future. I said reveries, daydreams, fantasies. And the core of this movement of restlessness I see is basically trying repeatedly to answer the question, am I okay? Am I okay right now compared to how I was yesterday, what I thought I should be, to my, the people to the left and the right of me, to what I think the teachers think of me? Was I okay? You know, did I do okay in my interview, in my yogi job, in my work, whatever? Will I be okay? You can see how much of our energy gets put into this questioning Am I okay? It's this, it's this kind of existential question. And coming to some kind of resolution or understanding of this movement of mind is really an important part of our meditation practice. How much time we spend in regret over the past and anxiety over the future, planning and worrying. You know, we all have different tendencies, some people more in the past, some people more in the future, but... It's where the mind goes. It's just what we see. Philip, I remember at a a last retreat, said that as humans, we're motivated by these two forces, uh, avoid and acquire. It's like avoid unpleasant experiences, acquire pleasant experiences or objects or people or whatever. Another way of looking at this is just these primal tendencies to fight, flight. I always get the right, fight or flight and then basically feed, you know, to, to actually be the conqueror in that situation, to, 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 to be uh, the, the victor. And it's out of this, again, very primal kind of movement um, from, our, from our 
long forebears of do I eat it or does it eat me? You know, we're making that kind of judgment call. And here we are in the 21st century with that genetic programming still in us. And it's understandable that that's deep because our ancestors who, when the bush rustled as they were sitting by the campfire, said, what's that over there? Ah, don't worry about it. Well, most of them aren't here because, you know, it was something to worry about and they were the ones that got eaten and we're the progeny of the people that were really nervous and said, you know, let's get out of here, let's protect ourselves or let's deal with this. So we have this in our DNA. You know, you can see that really clearly. I've been interested uh, for some time in um, a trauma work called Somatic Experience created by this man, Peter Levine, has a great book, Waking the Tiger, and a new book, um, Unheard Voices, I think it is. It's somatic experience. It's very aligned with meditation. Many of us teachers have trained in it and found it really valuable. Um, and what he did was look at animals in Africa, especially you know the interplay of the prey animals and the predators. And he said the prey animals, the deer and the antelope or whatever, you know, they get charged by a lion or whatever, and uh, you know, have the chase, maybe even get caught and escape. One would perhaps get eaten. But the ones that escaped, somehow they would shake off that experience and go back to calmly grazing. And he saw that again and again in animals. As humans, we've lost that ability. Our minds grip a hold of things so much that we end up storing this kind of stress, you could say even trauma. I mean, so much of what we experience it's difficult, it's a kind of trauma. We store it in the body. And so many people have chronic stress. It's like the, you know, they used to have the terror alerts. I'm glad they've given, given them up. It's like always elevated, always vigilant, always worried about what might happen. And so if you notice this as a tendency, it's really important that we, again, be, begin to work skillfully with it. And this kind of practice is actually a great antidote as we really invite the calming, the tranquility, the inclining towards states of well-being, this tendency towards anxiety to restlessness can really begin to calm. And as the retreat goes on, the restlessness that we experience is not the same as we did the first day you know, where it was just kind of twitchy and our body was all uncomfortable and the meditation periods were too long and the food wasn't right and the bed wasn't comfortable. Now it's like, oh, this bed is so comfortable. (laughs) Love this bed. You know, it shifts and we get more uh, used to being here. But actually, restlessness is one of the last fetters to go before full enlightenment. There's ten fetters that gradually drop away uh, over this, you know, lifetimes of practice, to full enlightenment, to, to our hardship. And the last few is restlessness. I was always curious about this. I mean, restlessness, you know? That's not what they're talking about at that level of um, development. But it is something we can relate to a little. This is from a great book called The Island that's an anthology of teachings and commentary on all of the, the Theravada Buddhist and Buddha's words on enlightenment. So it's basically about Nibbana, about enlightenment. And this is what they say about restlessness. The restlessness to which this refers is not the fidgeting of the uncomfortable meditator. It is the subtlest of feelings that there might be something better over there or just in the future, a feeling that that 
which is out of reach, might have more value in some way than this. It is the ever so insidious addiction to time and its promises. So perhaps you can just sense that sometimes we don't even know what it is we're wanting, what it is the restlessness is about. It's just out there, different, more, better, not this. This is the kind of restlessness that can really be a disturbance to our meditation practice and somehow recognizing it even in its subtle levels and actually making a commitment, a willingness to be here, however it is, whatever our experience is like, not slipping off into this insidious addiction to time and its promises. And so starting to experience, not as an idea, but as a felt sense, out of this willingness to be present, a sense of contentment, a sense of acceptance, a sense of ease in this moment. Not when we get rid of this knee pain or have a better meal or a better night's sleep, but somehow in this moment. And so we can start to see from this practice and from the instructions we've been giving, given, giving, Um, that we can start to incline the mind towards that kind of experience. Again, not out of greed or grasping, but really out of a sense of well-wishing, a sense of compassion, even wisdom, that this this is necessary for us to deepen on this path of practice, to actually allow these feelings of contentment, of kindness, of joy, of happiness... And so we start to see we have more of a choice than we perhaps thought we had. These mind states can seem so insistent, so much who we are, but we are actually making choices to perpetuate them, to feed them, to believe them. And so we have to have this transition that begins from accepting this moment, landing here, not seduced by the restlessness and this addiction to movement, but actually landing here with this experience as it is, and somehow finding ease right here. This is the possibility. If you know much about the Buddha's teachings and the many lists, as I mentioned, that he creates, especially the ones to do with meditation, they all have a similar kind of arc where they begin with the foundational states or qualities of mind, mental factors, and they're often calming or grounding factors, and then they go into, um, no, sorry, they're often energizing factors. They're, they're factors that arouse our you know, willingness to do this work. And then they peak at some kind of ec- ecstatic, you could almost say, kind of peak. And then they always go into more tranquil, more sublime, and then gradually lead to um, concentration and then to insight. This is the arc of all of the lists. The list we've been talking about a lot, jhanic factors, has that same arc. begins with Vitaka and Vichara, the workhorses, the foundation, the, the um, beginning of every moment of our practice. And then arcs uh, peaks with the pity, the joy, that can be a very energetic 
kind of experience that actually gives us the energy, the motivation, kind of a lot of confidence in practice. But then it always, or its intention, its inclination is to go to the subtle estates, next the sukha, the happiness. And then the further refinement is the ekagata. Ekagata as a refinement of happiness. This one-pointedness, it's actually synonymous both with concentration and equanimity. It has a kind of coolness to it in its collectedness of mind. That this is seen to be a greater happiness than the sukha. It's a refinement of um, the sukha. It's the same with the factors of awakening. Mindfulness is there at the beginning, but there's the arousing factors, and then they peak in, again in pity and go into the calming factors through concentration to equanimity. So this arc is very um, archetypal. It's very much a part of the just natural unfolding of a med- meditation practice. So in the jhanic factors, the sukha is there in the pity, the happiness there in the joy. And it's just a matter of refining, softening, going through in some way the energy of the pity to allow the sukha to refine and then even a letting go of that happiness to find the peace of one-pointedness, of deeper concentration. And so this theme of the refinement of our experience, of finding within the previous somewhat coarser experience a thread of the development of our practice is something you'll see again and again, this, this, the supportive nature of the conditions as they lead onward. And even in the hindrances, the same kind of process can happen. I often talk about within the hindrances, within each of the hindrances, you can find a thread of wholesomeness. And if we can just catch that thread we can find a way to transform the hindrance or our relationship to it. So with sleepiness, the wholesomeness is calm. You know, if we just bring a little bit of energy, then there's calm. With restlessness, there's energy. Can we turn the, ener- the restless energy into clear seeing, into connecting? With desire, you know, that wanting, I want this, I want that, it turns, can turn into, as wisdom comes in, dhamma chanda. That's desire for the Dharma, for the truth. We actually start to see more clearly what brings true happiness. And that becomes a focus of our desire, not these superficial, impermanent desires for sense pleasures or experiences. So we start to see for ourselves this natural unfolding as we continue this practice. The Buddha frames doing this looking for the disturbance in the current experience, however sublime it is. And this is, again, this theme that I'm uh, unfolding during this talk, that our willingness to see whatever is a disturbance, an agitation, somewhat coarse about an experience we previously thought was sublime. This allows for the deepening. I'm going to actually do a little bit going into a sutta that's quite a complex sutta. Um, it's a deep, deep teaching, but it's, it's all about this process. So if it seems too complex, please just let it go by. But some of you may know this sutta or connect with it, so can uh, understand what I'm talking about. It's uh, from the Majjhima Nikaya, 
the Middle Length Discourses, it's Sutta 121, the Chula Shunyata Sutta, the Lesser Discourse on Emptiness. And emptiness is a very important Buddhist theme and teaching and understanding. We're actually doing a whole retreat on it here in September, my husband Guy and I and Gil Fronsdale, where we really take up this this theme, this, this teaching, and look at it through our practice, through inquiry, through study, and, and really spend a week just working with it. And it's a theme, uh, uh, teaching, an understanding that's often misunderstood because it seems kind of mysterious. You know, emptiness, you know, it means there's nothing there, and if there's nothing there, what, is, what does that mean? Emptiness, in, to say it just really simply means that everything is conditioned, except the unconditioned, Nibbana, but everything else of this temporal world is conditioned. It arises because it was created. This was created by someone, I don't know who had the idea to make something like this, but someone did, um, and so it arose out of conditions. Your mind states arise out of conditions. Your body arose out of conditions. So inherently it's not self-existing. It doesn't exist independently of all of these other causes and conditions. That's a kind of simple explanation of emptiness, just because this is what I'm going to be talking about. So in this sutta, the Buddha is in Savati, one of the places we visited on the pilgrimage, um, at the, the park of Migara's mother. And it's a beautiful park, so it's very peaceful and calm. And Ananda, Ananda comes to him, his attendant, and says... Uh, I heard that you said one time that you just reside in emptiness. And the Buddha said, yes, that's true. I reside in emptiness. And he said, you know how busy the village is with all its people and the money and the shops and the horses and the elephants? This park here is empty of that. So I, you know, attend to that. And then he goes through this whole process of saying, see that full of disturbance, this experience is empty of that. So he says the village is full of disturbance. This park, this forest is empty of that. And so we notice that, that it's quieter here. It's, it's more refined. And then he goes on to say, and this is straight from the sutta, uh, a bhikkhu, and that's a practitioner, not attending to the perception of village, and that means perception, thinking about it, ruminating on it, kind of holding it in the mind, not attending to the perception of village, not attending to the perception of people, attends to the singleness dependent on the perception of forest. And by that he means this park that they're sitting in with its trees and its glades and its woods, um, that the the meditator actually just attends to, just like you've been doing here, the perception of forest and how restful that is to go out and look at nature and just feel the mind calm. So this is the beginning, attending to the perception of forest. He enters into the perception of forest and acquires confidence, steadiness, and resolution. He understands thus, whatever disturbances there might be, dependent on the perception of village, and for village you might substitute work or home or wherever, village, those are not present here. Whatever disturbance there might be dependent on the perception of people, those are not present here. There is only present this amount of disturbance, namely the singleness dependent on the perception of forest. So it's changed from the forest being restful compared to the village to now there's a slight amount of disturbance in the forest. And again, you might have had that sense 
when we go out and look at nature, you know, usually it's beautiful and it's restless. But if you really look, it's constantly shimmering and moving. And actually, if you look closely enough, the lizards are eating the ants and, you know, things are dying and being born. There's actually some agitation there. We start to notice that in what was previously sublime. He understands this field of perception is empty of the perception of village. This field of perception is empty of the perception of people. There is present only this non-emptiness, namely the singleness dependent on the perception of forest. This he regards as empty of what is not there, but as to what remains, there he understands that this is understands that which is present thus, this is present. Now, if you haven't heard a sutta before, there's a lot of repetition, it seems a little clumsy, but basically what he's saying, as I'm attending to forest, village, people aren't present, there's this. And it has this amount of disturbance in it, that as I got gained in the confidence, steadfastness and resolution in that perception, it's now a little, the mind is quietened enough that I see a little disturbance in this. And he goes on through the sutta, the next perception is that of earth. So from the movement of the forest, the next perception of earth. Earth is one of the traditional meditation objects that can deepen us into jhana. And so it goes through the four jhanas in the sutta, I won't go into that, but you can see how it's going from movement to earth, to stillness. But even then in the earth, there's some agitation. You know, in some time frame, there's agitation. Here in California, earth, you know, we say, oh, the earth is our ground. California, no, you know, the earth moves. So it's just opening to that, that even in this refined experience of earth, there's movement. So in the sutra, again, I won't go into it, he goes through the four jhanas and then what's called the four arupa jhanas or immaterial jhanas, very sublime states. The perception of space, the infinity of consciousness, of nothingness, of neither perception nor non-perception. And in each one, the, what first seems sublime, the mind as it quietens into it and kind of that meeting of that experience finds a little agitation there and begins to let go. And this is the process of the mind that deepens to awakening. And that's what the sutta goes into as this letting go and deepening continues to happen, the mind releases into freedom, into openness. Now, as I said, this is, you know, it's a teaching on coming to full awakening and and it can seem a little distant from where we are right now. But the theme of it, the pointing that's happening here, I think we can learn from. Again, not to grasp this as something I need to get, I think you've gotten already, it doesn't work that way. But through a willingness to be in our experience, land in it, so it's not rejecting where we are right now, but inclining in some way, some willingness, working skillfully with the hindrances, however we do it, to come to a subtler state of mind, a subtler state of body, a quieter body, a subtler breath, a happier mind. It's only through this kind of letting go, deepening and letting go, that this process can continue to deepen. So it's not through a force of will, it's not through trying to hold on, but it's actually a letting go. And it begins from 
beginning to prefer stillness and simplicity to distraction. And that we can do at any time. When we see the temptation for the mind to uh, uh, chew on something, by this time in the retreat, perhaps you've seen how how much suffering there actually is in that. I mean, we do it because we think it's pleasurable or we need to figure it out, but as you actually feel what it's like, it's like, no, let that go. Incline towards stillness. And then we start to see, can we find stillness right here, even in the movement? Just like we talked about, the perception of the forest and the slight agitation that's there. Even in this experience of the life of the body, can there be a stillness that we access? I gave the analogy on the opening night of not relating to the breath like it's a life preserver and someone's thrown it to us and we're kind of flailing and trying to hold on to it in these rough waves, but more like the breath is the ocean and we're a fish swimming in the ocean. This is the kind of stillness or calm that I'm pointing to, and Andrea this morning, I think it was, gave this great energy of the breath as waves, gentle waves coming through, and that attention is like this float on the waves. If you actually think of that image, yes, the float is moving with the waves, but the float itself is still. You know, it's made of foam or something. Its actual inner experience is of stillness. This is kind of what we're pointing to. I love these water images because I love swimming. I love being in the water, in the ocean. I love snorkeling. And, you know, sometimes you snorkel and it's calm. But sometimes you go out and there's a lot of surge or waves. And as a snorkeler, you know, going up and down. But you're looking at these fish in the ocean and they're just riding these waves. You know, and they're just going about their business. A little bit of this and they're like this and that. And there's this stillness. You know that? Have you seen that? I, I, you know, I, I'm an animal lover. I like to look at the fish. So there's these raccoon fish that I, uh, butterfly fish that you see, and they're often in pairs. They're beautiful, um, but they sleep during the day, and so there'll be two of them just right next to each other. Their eyes are open, but they're resting, and they're just kind of moving. But there's this stillness, this resting, that's happening. And you just watch them. There's this stillness in the movement. If you see a hawk that's been skittering around looking for something to eat, but then it sees it. And so it's there in the air, and its wings are moving, but there's that amazing stillness, right? You see its eyes and its head. They're just not moving. This is this stillness in movement. Even as the breath is moving, can we find some stillness there? I've shared with a few people already this classic analogy of working with the breath in meditation. It's like you're sawing a piece of wood and the breath is the saw. So it's going like this. When you're sawing a piece of wood, you don't go like this. You keep your attention on that point of contact where the breath, where the saw is touching the wood and the breath is moving over that place. This is what I'm pointing to. And the breath, that place is the attention can we find some stillness in the attention that's with the breath that's moving? Some stillness in the continuity of attention. So we just look for these places of stillness and quiet. And we can do this out of this kind of inclining, kind of 
opening to, willingness to, to recognize this as a possibility for us. This kind of steadiness really can only happen when we fall in love with the breath. Andrea talked this morning about breath as lover. I call it breath as the beloved. When we're intimate with the breath, where, that, where, that, where there's that willingness to be with the breath that just allows us to drop in and have that kind of connectedness that we can find in that, this stillness, this quietness, this calm. Tanasaro Bhikkhu, who teaches a lot about concentration and, and uh, working with the breath, says, How do you use pleasure? Focus on the breath right here and now and see how it feels. Then experiment with the breath to see how the way you breathe can produce either pleasure or pain. It may be subtle, the, differences between, the difference between the two, but it's there. We've learned to desensitize ourselves to this aspect of our awareness. So it's going to take a while to resensitize ourselves, to begin seeing the patterns. This is why we practice. Keep coming back to the breath, coming back to the breath. Try to get more sensitive to this area of your awareness, more skilled at learning how to maximize the potential for pleasure right here and now simply by the way you breathe, not only producing pleasure, but also maintaining it. After all, feelings of pleasure and rapture are part of the path. They're tucked in the Noble Eightfold Path under right concentration, and as part of the path, they have to be developed and maintained. As the Buddha said, this pleasure is blameless. So there's this possibility of this relationship to the breath that invites the mind into stillness, invites the whole experience into this kind of stillness. When we first experience this, it's kind of amazing. You know, this quietness that can be there, this sense of dropping in. And then what often happens is actually fear. It's so quiet, it's so still, we don't feel grounded in the way we do, usually do. We don't feel that familiar voice in the mind that's telling us what to do and where to go and what to think. And so we can actually feel quite ungrounded at this time in practice. Just to know this is actually, you could say, normal. Often, uh, often happens. But there's some part of us that knows this is a return to an experience that feels right, to something we perhaps used to know or is also in our DNA, as much as the agitation and restlessness. This stillness, this clarity, this, this openness is there. But the ego that's so used to being in control looks around and says, where's the place for me in this? And can kind of clamp down at this point, get agitated, Bring up fear. You know, what's happening now? Where where am I in this? What about me? And so we can often spiral out a bit at that point. This is, again, a time just to use your practice. Fear is just energy and thoughts in the mind. If we can find a way to connect, to ground, to use our breath, to open to this experience, to kind of hold it in a bigger picture, to trust this unfolding, Um, to actually turn towards the fear, towards this doubt or questioning, 
And I often use this beautiful gesture of the Buddha touching the earth, you know, to have this sense of refuge that we spoke about at the beginning. The moments of clarity or faith that you experience to really know that you're okay in some fundamental way. That whatever you're experiencing is impermanent, you can reconnect, you can, you know, use the resources that are here for sure. Come talk to us, you know, go to the managers. You're not alone if, if that experience of fear does happen. But really to know it's often, nearly always, part of this kind of deepening, this sense of groundlessness. And uh, we start to have real insight into the nature of this mind and body, this self that we thought was so omnipresent and so much a part of our experience, this narrating and commenting, actually doesn't need to be there. And we're not getting rid of anything. There actually wasn't anything there in the first place. We're actually seeing clearly that the self is just this constant arising of thoughts and sense impressions and ideas and moods and emotions. And in the stillness, there's actually a deeper sense of connection that feels more real than this mindless kind of chatter that's usually going on. The self is just a concept. It's a helpful concept. You know, it's one we use and can use skillfully um, and, you know, is necessary. But we start to see it is just that. And that in between, in between those thoughts and the agitation and the restlessness, we can touch these moments of stillness, of experience that's all just held in this kind of spaciousness. And we're still functioning, we're still seeing and tasting and going down to the dining hall and getting a meal and meditating but it's happening in this effortless kind of way. It's just unfolding, and there's not a superego getting in the way and judging and commenting. Of course it comes back, but then we kind of say, you, oh, right, I know you, and you have a place, and, you know, okay, here you are now. But we have a more skillful relationship, a deeper understanding. And so from this practice of being just aware of the breath. And a number of you have said, you know, the breath? You know, what's the breath got to do with it? But we start to see as we open and directly taste for ourselves a moment of presence, of relaxation, of happiness or contentment. And then even subtler than that, the one-pointedness, the stillness, the equanimity, we can begin to trust that. We know for ourselves that this, this is the direction that this path leads. This is where this practice and these teachings head to, this possibility of resting in stillness, even as everything's in movement. And it doesn't mean we won't think again or relate to people, but there's kind of a, a place we can contact, even momentarily, of stillness or spaciousness that's a huge refuge, a huge support. And that as that deepens, you know, as the sutta goes on to say, it can deepen into great and deep freedom. The freedom that the Buddha talked about is possible. This is the direction of this practice. 
So I want to finish again with some words I got from a student who has been practicing for a while and they were registering for the month-long retreat here and describing their experience in their application. And he'd been doing a lot of breath meditation. This is what he said. I can feel myself becoming a happier, more mindful, kinder and more generous person as I continue to practice. I find that I can fall back into a very enlivened, radiating, happy, empty place that I first discovered on retreat. And I am continually using it as a support to stay mindful and generous while dealing with the challenges of my day-to-day life. In addition to my sitting practice, I also have a practice of regular brisk mindful walking to help me stay connected to the sensations in my body. I feel from the inside that I am rewiring my neural networks through the concentration practice. The impact of the whole body breathing and the long retreats has been indescribable. Access to an ongoing resource of happiness that I am using to heal and reshape my neurotic habits and patterns. As I continue to connect with that place inside me in my daily life, it supports me in becoming more skillful in my actions and becoming a better, more generous, compassionate human being. I was so inspired when I read that from breathing and knowing that he was breathing. He was still fully engaged in his life and the busyness of life, but finding this resource, this stillness, this access to happiness, this is what this path and practice promises us and can lead to. And we get there one breath at a time, one step at a time, one moment at a time. Let's just sit for a moment and let the words settle. So if anything I've said tonight has been helpful, please, you can work with it. If it wasn't helpful, please just let it go. You know, the most important thing that I want to leave you with is just being right where you are. That's what actually helps this practice to deepen. Right where you are, however the mind is, however the body is. And then that's, as Pema Chodron says, start where you are. Be right where you are. And that's okay. So thank you. I have about 35 minutes for walking. It's a good time of night just to get some fresh air 
and get a little reinvigorated and invite you to come back for. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.